0: This morning's scripture reading is taken from Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 18. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed,
1: Thank you, Deirdre. It's been 16 years since I had my moment of conversion. I was taking a shower after having read the Bible earlier that day, having read from the Gospels. And as I was taking that shower, I just became overwhelmed with my sin, that I was a sinner, that I was sinful, and it was a crushing weight, that as it laid upon me, I found myself just almost without any thought at all, praying, oh, Father, forgive me. Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. Take these sins from me. And I love that the Lord called me to himself while I was taking a shower because as I was praying, forgive me, cleanse me, I was being washed. I was having my body cleaned. And so as I was feeling the being cleaned, I was being cleaned on the inside. My sins were rolling off, canceled, washed clean in Jesus And that experience has changed my life. It is because of that experience that I am here, desiring to be a minister of that gospel. I left that shower with such joy and passion, such relief and gratitude. I was a sinner and Christ died for me. I was guilty. Now, I was forgiven. I came out of that shower with a new heart, a gospel shaped heart. But you know what? Sometimes I lose sight of that truth when my pride tries to tell me I'm not that sinful. Or I get bored with that news. How many times have I heard the words, your sins are forgiven? Sometimes I think to myself, I know I'm forgiven. Tell me something new. Sometimes I find myself persuaded by the world's answers to sins. Just overlook that. Just excuse it. Downplay it. Compare yourself to someone else. You're not that bad. Minimize them. When these thoughts take hold slowly but surely, my heart becomes less and less gospel shaped. I get more indignant with people, more judgmental, more frustrated and angry at all the injustices around me. I grow in this sense of self righteousness and pride. It swells, and I drive down the road and I look at all these blasted sinners that don't know how to drive. And I let them know in my heart, you guys are terrible. And then I go to the store, and all these people getting in my way, taking my, my spot in the line or getting in the, in the line that's going faster. I'm like, who are they? And then when the cashier can't find the barcode, I mean, what is that? How incompetent. Oh, I fill with so much snark and judgment. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. Can you relate? Do you struggle with keeping your heart gospel-shaped? Or maybe this doesn't describe you. Maybe you're in a different situation. Maybe you are sitting here today and you can just feel the weight and the condemnation of your sin. And there is a message in the back of your mind, unforgivable. Unforgivable. That cannot be paid for. That cannot be taken away. Perhaps you are in that position, in which case you desire a gospel shaped heart, but you feel it is denied because what you have done has disqualified you from the forgiveness of the gospel. But in either way, there is much struggle in this room to keep a gospel shaped heart. The Lord knows how frail we are and how easy it is for us to lose a gospel shaped heart. That's why He has given us the fifth petition in the Lord's Prayer. This petition is meant to grow in us daily a gospel-shaped heart. Keeping our gospel-shaped heart is an urgent concern. It is something that we cannot treat lightly or delay or excuse. Jesus has an encounter in the gospel of Luke, the seventh chapter, which illustrates the urgency of this. And I'm going to go ahead and read the passage. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 says this. One of the Pharisees, Asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Jesus says, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, and she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The story shows two very different approaches to Jesus and to others. Simon doesn't see himself as a sinner. The woman clearly does. Simon sits in judgment of the woman and of Jesus, because if he knew what that woman was, if he really was godly, he would know, and he would be doing something different than letting this woman be at his feet. The woman is overcome with love and gratitude. She has a gospel-shaped heart. Now, at the end of this story, only one of these two are found in the kingdom. The woman The world is constantly trying to put the heart of Simon in us. We are trained to be litigious, to demand our rights, to make people pay for their wrongs. It's a dog-eat-dog world, and the people who get to the top get there by chewing and devouring all the way. Do you battle with the heart of Simon in you? I hope that you battle with it because it is always at the door. And we must battle it because it is a heart that will not find itself welcome in the kingdom. How do we overcome the heart of Simon? The Lord has given us the fifth petition to do so. The fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, works to keep and to grow our gospel-shaped heart. Day by day. How does it do that? So we look at this passage, we're going to see two ways. There are two ways that the fifth petition grows gospel shaped hearts in us day by day. The first way, it revives us in the Father's limitless forgiveness. The Lord's Prayer revives us in the Father's limitless forgiveness. We see in these words, and forgive us our debts, that the Father's forgiveness is limitless. And we're going to see three uh, descriptors of how it is limitless in this short petition. It is limitless in that his forgiveness covers every debt. It is limitless in that his forgiveness never runs out. And it is limitless in that his forgiveness is always ready. Let's look at each of those in detail, the Father's forgiveness is limitless in that it covers every debt. Now we notice in the Lord's Prayer, which is used in uh, pretty much every denomination, and whenever we're at mixed company or at funerals or at weddings, we find ourselves all able to pray the Lord's Prayer together. But there's just one part where everything just gets muddled as we're saying it, and it's this petition. Because one-third of you are saying debts, one-third are saying sins, and one-third is saying transgressions, blah, 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 when we get there. What's the difference? Why, why sins? Why debts? Why transgressions? Well, the Lord's Prayer, as given in the Sermon on the Mount, uses the word debts. And it uses the word debts because I want it, it wants us to think about Our sins, our transgressions, not as stuff where we have gone over the line. But it wants us to think of our life as a debt that we owe to God. You see, obedience is something that we fulfill. If we use the word sins, many of us can look at ourselves and say, Well, you know, I I haven't done many sins today. I, I certainly haven't killed anybody, and I didn't steal anything, and I was truthful and honest. I really can't think of any sins. So when we think of sins, we think about these things that we have uh, crossed the line about. And most of us do a pretty good job of keeping ourselves from crossing the line. And when that is our definition, we can take from that a sense that we're not that bad. We're certainly not that woman. Oh my goodness, has she crossed the line and how many times? But today, I have not crossed that line. And we do not feel like sinners. But Jesus is teaching us a different word. He's teaching us the word debts. Debts are something we owe. It's talking about obligation. It's talking about fulfilling a payment. Jesus is saying that as we live in this world, we live with an obligation, an obligation to fulfill. What, what do we owe? What do we owe? Do we owe simply not crossing the line to God? No, we owe fulfilling the law. Now, I could go through all 627 laws of the Old Testament, and it would be riveting. But thankfully, Jesus summarizes for us the entire heart of the law in two commandments. He says that we fulfill the entirety of the law if we love the Lord our God with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and if we love our neighbor as ourself. Now, if we are simply thinking about transgressions, about crossing the line, then perhaps we are fulfilling that great commandment. But when the commandment is love, that's active. That's requiring action. To love God with all your mind means you have to use your mind actively towards God. To not be thinking about God with your mind is to be failing to fulfill the Great Commission. To be acting, even if you're not doing anything wrong per se, but not doing it out of love for God, is failing to fulfill the first commandment. Not murdering your brother is not crossing the line, but when the commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, You need to care for their protection, for their well-being, for their safety. If they are out on the street and they don't have a coat, fulfilling the law would take them a coat. So when we come to recognizing that fulfilling the law means not just crossing the line, but living fully for God, fulfilling all of these obligations, doing things, not just not doing things, we recognize that we have a great debt to fulfill. There are not just transgressions, but positive obligations. It teaches us that we cannot flatten the law and simply say, I'm not a killer, how bad could I be? We have to look at what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. The idea of debts reminds us that an employee is fireable, not just for stealing at the office, but for doing a lousy job. You have failed to fulfill your job description. Your job was to do X. You didn't do it, but I didn't steal anything. Not the point. You have not fulfilled the obligations of your job. Our job is to fulfill the law, to live fully for God. And so when we see the word debts, we are confronted by the fact that our obligation is much larger than simply going through our day and saying, well, I didn't tell any lies, and I I didn't hurt anybody, I didn't commit adultery. It includes a lot more. James, the Lord's brother, tells us whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. How many days have we gone by knowing there was something right that we should have done that we just walked right on past? Congratulations. You're a sinner. How deep is our debt then? When we talk about debt in this sense it's not just crossing the line but also fulfilling the law. Well, I I think if we look at the The parable in Matthew 18, we get some idea. There is this king who has a servant who comes to him who we're told has a 10,000-talent debt. 10,000-talent debt is equivalent to a zillion dollars. It is an unpayable amount of money that this person has accrued as debt. And so he stands in front of this king with a debt that would take 10,000 lifetimes for him to pay if he gave every day's pay straight to the debt. Jesus is using this, perhaps as hyperbole, but perhaps to tell us that our debt to God is that humongous. Our failure to fulfill our obligations is that great of a debt. It has a 1,000 lifetimes that it would take us to pay it. How could that be? How can can we have a debt that that's big and we still feel pretty okay about ourselves? Well, just the other day, a painting from Leonardo da Vinci sold for $450 million. Now, you can say that's ridiculous. Absolutely a waste of money. Fine. But the free market paid $450 million for this piece of art. So in somebody's idea, this thing is worth $450 million. Now what would happen if you stumbled across it and spilt red paint all over it? It doesn't matter how much the paint cost. It doesn't matter how little amount of time it took to stumble and do it. You have marred a $450 million object. Immediately, you have a debt that you will not be able to pay in 20 lifetimes. And that's a Da Vinci. Imagine if the creator of the universe had made a masterpiece, had made something, he says, that's got my name on it. That bears my image. That displays my glory. And you were to take that image and scar it and scratch it and scrape it and tear it and blemish it and pollute it and make it look like an absolute parody, a hideous, hideous reflection of its original master. How much would you owe for destroying that image? Now I think we see how the debt is so large. It's not our little bitty sins. It's that it is scraping and marring and polluting a priceless image of God. And that's where its value is. You are in the image of God. You are priceless. And every sin that you commit has a priceless tag to it. So when we see debts, and we see that our our debt is so great, does it not reveal to us the magnificence of Jesus' righteousness? When we consider the full depth of our debts, and then we come across in Scripture that Jesus is righteous, that Jesus fulfills the law, what does that mean? It means that certainly he had no transgressions, Jesus never hurt anybody, never murdered anybody, never had any adultery. adultery. Even more than that, he lived up to the extreme definitions of those laws in the Sermon on the Mount. He never even had an idea that was sinful. Even with 40 days of hunger, he did not covet food that was not his. Incredible. He never transgressed the line. But how much more, he fulfilled the law every day of his life, every breath, every beat of his heart, loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, even when it put him in grave danger. We see in Mark chapter 3 that there's a man with a withered hand in the tabernacle or in the, temp- uh, the uh, synagogue, and Jesus, who has compassion, who loves his neighbor, recognizes that that he has the obligation to free that man of that withered hand. And he does that under the leering eyes of the Pharisees who say, is he going to break the Sabbath? Is he going to do something? Jesus loves his neighbor, heals that withered hand. And he does that knowing full well that those Pharisees are going to say, he's a lawbreaker He worked on the Sabbath, and they were going to build a case to put him on the cross. He loved his neighbor even to the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus fulfills all righteousness. In Jesus, there is no transgression, not even a thought. He fulfills the law by loving God and neighbor perfectly. He lived a life that left no debt to God's will. That's Jesus' righteousness. And then we are told that Jesus put his life down for us. That he went to the cross. That in going to the cross, he paid all of our debt. And he gave us all of his righteousness that fulfills the law. In Jesus, we find that he has fulfilled the gospel for us. Jesus pays our debts by his life And death. All the the disobedience, all the marring that we have committed, Jesus pays it all on the cross. All the righteousness, all the perfection, all the fulfillment of God's will, Jesus gives it entirely to our account. So that we stand before God because of Jesus' perfection. And we are seen by the Father as debt free, paid in full, completely satisfactory. In God's eyes. More than that, beautifully and totally loved. That's what Jesus does. And then Jesus gives his disciples this prayer. He says, To pray, Father, forgive us our debts. Do you recognize that Jesus gave us this petition at the cost of his life? The reason that we are able to hit, come to this prayer and say, Forgive us our debts, it's because. Jesus had already set himself to pay for the debt. And every time we come to this forgive us our debts, Jesus is saying, I did it. I forgave you. We get forgiveness, we get this prayer because Jesus laid his life on the line. Romans 6:23 tells us there are no for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we recognize that the parable that Jesus read about the 10,000 talents, we come to recognize that there is no sin that is too big. That Jesus' righteousness covers all and gives all. So if you are like that woman who comes saying, I I can't know if I can be forgiven. How how could I be forgiven? I am unforgivable. The 10,000 talents have been paid for you in Jesus. Now it's also important that as we look at this prayer that there is a a second context within uh, what I just said. There is obviously forgiveness to salvation, which is what I've been talking about, but there is also another context that this prayer raises for us, and that is forgiveness in the family. Because we are praying this prayer as disciples. We are praying our Father in heaven, and then we are praying these petitions. So in the Lord's prayer's view... We are already adopted children of God. We are already in Jesus Christ. We already have that forgiveness. And yet, we are still asked to pray, forgive us our debts. So there is a second sense of asking for forgiveness. There is a sense of forgiveness in the family. This petition, most typically, unless you're an unbeliever praying it, if you're, but, but we're assuming that's not the typical case. If you are a believer praying this, then when you are praying, forgive us our debts, you are not praying for your salvation to be restored. You are praying to have the intimacy that you had with the Father restored. Because what does sin do in our earthly families? When one of our kids goes out and does something that they know is wrong, when they break a rule, it's not that they have lost your love, it's not that they're kicked out of the house, but it's a bit frosty. It's a bit a bit tension right there at the dinner table until the son or the daughter says, "Dad, uh, sorry, I took the car even though you told me not to," or "I put, you know, the remote control and I hit it, so now you can't watch any TV." Sorry, I know you told me not to do that. Um, that's forgiveness in the family. All healthy families say, "I'm sorry." Please forgive me. And that's the same thing in the family of God. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we come to a recognition that today I have not fulfilled uh, righteousness in myself. And we say, Heavenly Father, forgive me for my, uh, my debts. So limitless, his forgiveness covers every debt, but also it's limitless in that his forgiveness never runs out. Notice that this petition, the fifth petition, is grouped with petitions four, five, and six, which are our, our uh, earthly needs. 1, 2, and 3 are all about our heavenly out, uh, living for God. 4, 5, and 6 are about what we need. So we need daily bread, we need forgiveness, and we need protection. So these are all grouped together as daily needs. But even more importantly, it's one sentence. There's no period, there's no separation. These three petitions are grouped together in one sentence. Which seems to mean that Jesus expects you to pray for all three together. Now I said last week, That daily bread ties this prayer to our stomach. We learn to pray the Lord's Prayer as often as we need food. What it seems to mean then is that we are needing to ask for forgiveness about as often as we're asking for food. We need daily forgiveness. This prayer is telling us that you're a daily sinner. And I, I guess you may think, well, how, how can I possibly accept that accusation? I, I'm not a daily sinner. How have you done with the great commandment today? Have you had a moment where you didn't love God with all your strength today? Have you had a moment where you didn't love God with all your heart? There is no day where we don't have a debt. First John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This petition requires us to say, I am a daily sinner. I need the gospel every day. I need Jesus every day. It gives us an opportunity to exclaim, thank you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of my sins every day. When Peter asked the question in Matthew twenty uh, eighteen, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? Three times? Maybe seven times? And Jesus says, I don't say seven times, I say 77 times, or 490 times, depending on how you translate it. The point is that we are to give our brothers unlimited forgiveness. There is no clock, there's no counter. They come to you for forgiveness for 100 times, you forgive them 100 times. But that standard is built on the heavenly standard. If you are to forgive endlessly and limitlessly your brother, it is because your heavenly Father is forgiving you ten score as many. I think it's interesting that Peter, who is stumbling all over the place in the Gospels, who is burning through grace at a, at a record pace, is the one that asks this question. You know in Jesus' mind, do you have a clue how many times your Father has forgiven you just today? And you're wanting to call it seven? And we're wanting to say seven's enough? Do you only want seven forgive you's from God? No. The point is that God's forgiveness never runs out. God has no limit. There is never a sin too many for for him to be unwilling to forgive you. I want you to hear that. You cannot wake up tomorrow and blow it and not be able to come back to God and say forgive me and receive complete forgiveness. Okay? Don't blow it. But if you do, there's still forgiveness. If you blow it for the next 75 days, and you come back every day and you say, Father, forgive me, he's there and says, I forgive you. Now don't blow it tomorrow. Okay? Okay? So it's limitless, and His forgiveness never runs out. But third, it's limitless, and His forgiveness is always ready. Here's the beautiful thing about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father would not ask us to pray for something that He is not eager to answer. He says, pray daily, forgive us my debts, because daily, and more than daily, He is ready to say, forgiven, again, First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, if we confess, he is never going to deny us. God offers all of his children daily assurance of his love by inviting them to ask for daily forgiveness. Does God love you? Ask him to forgive you. He'll say yes, every day, every time. In this petition, you get to hear the God, God's word back to you again and again, forgiven and beloved, forgiven and beloved. That message will hold you back from all sorts of sinful vain, prideful behaviors. Because what do you really want to hear? You want to hear forgiven and beloved. And every time we come to the Lord's Prayer and we say, forgive us our debts, the answer is immediate. You are forgiven and beloved. So, that's the first way. Hope you didn't lose track in your handout. It revives us in the Father's limitless grace. That's the first way that this petition grows gospel-shaped hearts in us day by day. The second, it pumps God's forgiveness out of us into others. It pumps God's forgiveness out of us into others. This is where the Lord's Prayer has a little bit of a tail to it. You pray, forgive us our debts, and then we pray, as we also have forgiven our debtors as we also have forgiven our debtors, oh, that causes a bit of a pause. There is a serious warning here for self-examination. As we have forgiven, Jesus underlines this in verses 14 and 50. Just after he finished the Lord's Prayer, the only petition that he said, you know what, I want to make sure you didn't miss something. I want to make sure you didn't didn't, uh, get lost in this. He goes back to the fifth petition and makes sure that you understand if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He's saying don't misunderstand that that petition five is not just a request, it's a lifestyle. Okay? Okay? So when it has the word as in there, that means in like manner. Forgive us as we have forgiven others. Now that's a that's a probing question for each of us. This prayer is asking back to each of us, do you want the father to forgive you the way you have forgiven others? Is that the forgiveness you're hoping for? The way that you've forgiven your son, the way you've forgiven your brother? The way that you've forgiven your coworker—is that the forgiveness that you're hoping to get from the Father? What would it look like if our Father said, "Okay, you forgave this much, so will I"? That's not what we want, but the prayer puts in front of us this urgent question, and that is the re- the, the reason for this is that we recognize whether or not our heart is truly revived in the gospel. When we go back to Matthew 18 and we look at that parable after the man is forgiven 10,000 talents, 10,000 lifetimes of debt to pay, he immediately goes on the street, not living in the gratitude and sharing his forgiveness with others, but in exacting the debts of those who owe him. And he is as brutal and, and merciless as, as he can be. And when he shows that he is unforgiving, he comes back to find out that his forgiveness isn't there anymore. Either, the point is that we have been forgiven a major debt, and if we cannot handle giving forgiveness to paltry debts, then we do not understand the gospel. unforgiveness in our hearts may reveal that you are unforgiven. I appreciate how Chris Bronze summarizes what is being said here. He says, "Saying I cannot or will not forgive." is essentially another way of saying, I'm thinking about going to hell. I don't think that's something to laugh at. I think that's pretty good interpretation. So when you want to withhold forgiveness, substitute in that, I'm thinking about going to hell. And then think about it again. This again applies in family context. The closeness between my kids is conditioned on the kindness and the peace that they share between themselves. So when my two boys are fighting and will not get along with each other, you know what they also have? They have a problem with their father. I'm not going to just forgive one of my boys while he's treating the other boy completely rotten. I am wanting to see those two boys having peace and kindness to one another before they come to me and say, forgive me. There is a relationship in the family of God. If we are not in peace this way, we should not be uh, presumptuous that we're at peace this way. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The idea is that, that our salvation is not just between God. It has brought us into a family. We cannot just come to God and have all peace and happiness if we want to live in discord with one another. One of the reasons that we celebrate communion every week is to discern the body. To remember that we are not just in a relationship with God, we are in a relationship with one another. And so if you take this meal, you are living in earnest to be at peace with one another. How do we know our heart is revived by the gospel? How do we know? It beats with God's love. A heart that God has revived beats out God's love. We're told this in Ephesians be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Like God, we must be willing to forgive any debtor any number of times and as soon as they ask any debtor, no matter how many times and as soon as they ask. But how can we? How can we do that? That's, that's so hard. It's, what you're saying is too painful. It's, it's too hard. I know in this room there have been things done to you. There have been grievances committed against you. I, that I cannot imagine, and I do not want to downplay their seriousness. They are debtors to you. It means that they have seriously cost you something real. They've cost you reputation, they've cost you happiness, they've cost you wholeness, they've cost you innocence, they've cost you opportunity. Yes, they're real debtors. And what this petition is reminding us is forgiveness is costly. It's not just the word. It's the commitment to forgive. Forgiveness is costly because what it's saying is, I have to absorb the debt. I have to take it on and say, I'm not charging you with it. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take all of the mess, all of the disaster. I'm just going to take it. Oh, that makes us... That hurts. That's agonizing. That's like death to say, I, I'm just going to take it. I'm not charging you with it. It hurts. Where can we find the power to bear that pain? It's not in ourselves. We can't possibly be big enough to bear some of the debtors that have come to us. So we must look elsewhere. This petition requires us again to look at the cross. We have to look there and remember that your sin, my sin, cost the Father, His own beloved, cherished Son, to be hung upon a cross and bleed out with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what your sin cost. That's what it took for God to say, I'm releasing the debt. I'm not holding it over you. I'm paying it with my son's blood, who's righteous. And has been the apple of my eye from before the ages began. That's what I'm doing for you. Christ paid the 10,000 talent debt by giving his life for yours. We become more forgiven only by grasping the forgiveness we've received. There's no other way. Each time we forgive, we learn a bit more the depth of the gospel that forgave us, and we reveal a bit more of it to the world around us who needs that forgiveness too. Let me propose this. That hard person to forgive, if you forgive it, you will experience more of what the gospel has done to say, I forgive you. You will grow in depth there is a reward. You will know the love of the Father more deeply and more experientially than if you walk away from the opportunity to forgive the debt. So the sixth petition grows in us, gospel-shaped heart, by reviving in us the Father's limitless forgiveness and by pumping God's forgiveness out of us into others. The Lord's Prayer gives us the remedy to the cold heart, the Simon heart, by keeping us close to our need for forgiveness and keeping us in daily gratitude for the gospel. We should resist the world's tempting message to ignore sin or overlook sin or downplay sin or excuse it. These messages take us away from the vision of Jesus. They take us away from the kingdom. They separate us from the good news of forgiveness Do you have any question about your forgiveness? Perhaps you struggle that you can truly be forgiven. I want to end today reminding you of the woman at Jesus' feet. How great was her sin? How many times do you think she said to herself, I'm unforgivable? How many times did she feel crushed and hopeless as she thought about her salvation and the state of her soul? But Jesus saw the woman. And he sees you. He loves you with great compassion. He loves you with his own life. It is not how great your debt is, it is how great God's love is. He is the God that forgives the unpayable debt because his heart is rich in forgiveness. So rich that there is no debt too large for him to cancel. Come to Jesus. Come to his feet with all your sins. Ask him for his forgiveness and his life. Pray to him, forgive me my debts. He will look at you warmly and he will say the same words he said to the woman. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, teach us forgiveness. Teach us your forgiveness. We need it, and the world needs it. Our families need it. Our friends need it. Make us rich in forgiveness because you have so richly forgiven us. Let our heart beat and pump your forgiveness out of us, into others. And may others come to you recognizing there is no debt so great that they are unforgivable, that your grace truly is ready to forgive and ready to forgive again and again and again. Father, teach us your limitless forgiveness, not that we would trample it or make light of it, but that we would recognize how rich and deep your love is, how assured we are that we are forgiven and beloved because every sin that we come to you with is forgiven in Christ, forgiven now, forgiven forever. And so, Father, we pray as your Son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread,